And so if you want to go from legacy to regulated, are you willing to learn all the things that you need to learn to be effective? And so I, I have been, um, and I don't know that makes me unique, but I think it's definitely helped me survive the last year because last year, a lot of people went under and there's still a lot of people going under. But the willingness to learn, I think, is what will set people apart who want to make the jump. Because a lot of people from the legacy industry, I think we know it all. We've been doing this for 20 fucking years. I've been growing since, you know, we were touching plants back when it was illegal. Nobody knows how to grow like us. Yes, a lot of us are really good growers. But are you a good grower at scale? Can you take what you did on 99 plants and apply it to 20 acres? And the answer is largely no. It doesn't work at scale. And you need to learn and to bring in people from other industries, bring in people from ornamentals, horticulturalists, people who understand agriculture at scale, and then the legacy artisanal cannabis knowledge and marry the two together to really do this thing right. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And today is the official three-year anniversary of the To Be Blunt podcast. To celebrate, I wanted to share a little bit about the journey of producing this show, because if you've been listening since the beginning, you've certainly seen and heard some of the evolutions, but I wanted to give you a little peek inside as to how I produce the show and what work, care, and love goes into bringing new episodes to you weekly. When I started this three years ago, I actually did it on a whim, almost in a vacuum, I was coming out of a year-long relationship, the pandemic was at an all-time high, and I had never put on a podcast or show, but I was extremely motivated and maybe a little bit delusional. All I knew was that I wanted to talk to operators and other people who were trailblazing and paving the path forward to operating in the licensed regulated cannabis industry. And originally, I had intended to edit the episodes myself and quickly realized that if I wanted to be consistent, at least for me, that I would have to outsource that component between the social media posts and the booking of the show and the follow-ups and everything in between. It really is a production to bring this show to life every single week. If I were to do it again, maybe weekly is a lot to take on, but I'm here and I've been doing it and I'm so grateful for the discipline and the opportunity that putting this podcast on has shown me and provided. I remember specifically making a short list of guests when I first started that I wanted to have on the show. Of course, I reached out to people who were friends or who I knew would jump on to chat, but having no history, it was really bold of me to go after some of these aspirational brands. And to my surprise, a few of them said yes in those early days, specifically the founder of one of my favorite OG cannabis brands from Denver, Love's Oven. I remember reaching out to the founder, Peggy. I found her email in a press release, and I just shared openly about how much I loved her products. Every time I would visit Colorado, I would seek out her products and her edibles 
And I guess that was successful because I was not expecting a response from her, but Peggy responded to me directly and agreed to be on the show. So that was a really cool moment for me early on. And then if you can believe it, Joe Hodis of Wana Brands, which is also the number one edible brand in the world, agreed to be on the podcast in those early moments. And he was featured in episode eight. And I think that's a really cool testament to putting yourself out there and shooting for the stars because you really never know what you can accomplish just by asking. Again, if you never ask, the answer will always be no. But if you ask, you have the possibility of that answer actually turning into a yes. And so in that case, Joe came on the podcast and we talked all about Juana. And I'm also really excited to highlight that I get to re-interview actually moderate a panel with Joe coming up in a couple of weeks in Denver at the Cannabis Marketing Association's Cannabis Marketing Summit. And it's just really full circle for me. In fact, all three of the panelists on that panel are former podcast guests. So it's been really fun to see what the podcast has really helped pave a way for. And again, I didn't know if these people would say yes when I was doing my early pitching And after a few episodes, of course, having some of those under my belt, I would then use those episodes and those guests to reference, to present to new guests, almost as a, you're in good company, so please be on my podcast. And I just remember like constantly like rolling through that. So I would pitch people on LinkedIn. I would come across a cool brand. I would pitch people on Instagram DMs. I would see some really cool marketing or packaging. And then, of course, cold emails, like I said, with Peggy, like I really was pushing myself into the uncomfortable zone, really motivated by what's the worst that could happen. All you have to do is ask. So that was really a big emphasis for just the rolling thunder of producing, creating, keeping up with the podcast that I really wanted to, again, help connect some of those dots for you guys, because I think it's so easy just to see there's a new episode and it's uploaded and This is the guest without really understanding some of the motivations or the different actions that it took to actually get that guest on the show. And so it's been a tremendous experience just getting to connect, build my network, again, looking at different social media platforms, getting introduced to people in person, going to conferences, going to shows, hearing people's stories, checking out people's brands, and then ultimately being able to invite them onto the podcast. So if you can imagine it, I have done it. And this is really still been the thread of how I operate the podcast today. And truthfully, there are still so many cool brands, operators and lessons to be learned. And so in these three years, there have been over 148 episodes bringing you stories from real industry operators, reflecting the varying state programs and even a few international stories too. And my goal with this podcast has always been to highlight transparent and blunt conversations in an effort to soak up as much knowledge as I could to bring back to my own brand and business while also being able to provide that for an audience. And I think I've accomplished that tenfold. And it's a massive thanks to my guests for coming on and sharing so honestly. But it's also a big thank you to you for pressing play and tuning into these episodes because. I have to imagine you too want to get better and to learn and to grow your own brand and business. And I'm just really, truly grateful from the bottom of my heart. So glad that you're here and that you see and have used my podcast as a resource to better educate and familiarize yourself with the ever-changing cannabis industry. With that said, I don't really know the future of the podcast. I don't say that to say, oh, question mark. 
I really just mean I don't have any particular goal. I certainly have some guests that I would love to feature on the show. I think there's still some states that I don't have reflected. I'm really keen to learn more about what's going on in Alaska, for example. But for now, I aim to continue to bring new content to you weekly. I just really think the industry is so exciting and yet so fast-paced that I'm trying to keep up with the best of them. And I really look forward to what we can accomplish together championing cannabis. So again, I really could not be more happy to have you here. And if you enjoy this content too, then I encourage you to please head to bebluntpod.com and subscribe to my Substack so that you can stay up to date with new content. Plus, it just really means a lot to be able to connect with you on that platform. I think it's going to allow us to have a little bit more of a dynamic community. And if you want to celebrate with me, I would love to hear from you, whether you leave a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you slide into my DMs on Instagram and share about your experience listening to the podcast. It means a lot to hear from you. And a big thank you to everyone who has already reached out. Just know that when you connect with me and being able to have you a part of the podcast family, it really encourages me to keep going. And in return, I hope that I have also been encouraging to you. So with that said, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for pressing play. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for showing up, for advocating, for being a great representation of the plant and also always operating out of a posture of wanting to learn, wanting to grow, wanting to help change the industry for the better. I could not do this without you. Now, a quick introduction of today's guest before we dive into the episode. I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest because I was introduced to him through a former podcast guest, shout out Mitch, and also his team had reached out to me And again, I feel like there's so many solicitations that I get and I always welcome solicitations because otherwise, how would I find out about cool people doing crazy, fun, challenging, hard things in the cannabis industry? And so it was just a very serendipitous timing to be connected to today's guest. And so I really am excited to introduce you to him, Willie McKenzie. He is the CEO and co-founder of Left Coast Holdings which is a vertically integrated cannabis firm based in Michigan. After founding the company in 2020, he scaled the business quickly to achieve eight-figure top-line revenue in 2021 and beyond. And prior to Left Coast Holdings, Willie was a legacy cannabis cultivator in the hills of Northern California. California is his home state. He is also passionate about mentorship, though, and loves helping others find success in their business, which Definitely was a common thread in today's conversation. He was just super open and very passionate to share the lessons that he's learned the hard way in the hopes of helping others, you and me, learn from his experiences. And truly, Willie practices what he preaches. And this episode, he shares so candidly that I know there will be some takeaway gems that you can put to use immediately. I really valued hearing about why he chose to go from the legacy market to the licensed market as it's not an easy decision to make when some moments feel like you're being forced out and others because you can't keep up. We also discussed the Michigan cannabis market and what that means for operators, specifically being vertically integrated operators. He shares the pros and the cons of pursuing that path while also being realistic about what your own capabilities are. So lots to learn from Willie. 
please help me by lining one up and let's welcome Willie to the show. My name is Willie McKenzie. I am CEO and co-founder of Left Coast Holdings. We're a vertically integrated cannabis company based in Manistee, Michigan. My history in the cannabis industry starts back in the late 90s. I started selling weed in high school, like many people do. I have consistently sold weed since I was in high school. So I sold weed in high school. I sold weed in college. I sold weed afterwards. And I'm 38 years old today, turning 39 years old, and I still sell weed. So I do come from the legacy market in California, cultivation, everything that goes along with that. I was up in the hills in uh, Tuolumne and Sonoma County for a number of years. And when Prop 64 came along, unfortunately, I wasn't able to take my properties into the recreational market. And so I had an opportunity to come to Michigan in 2019. I, I jumped at the opportunity. And since we came here, we started off with a farm that we leased. 120 acre farm. We built a, a small indoor a greenhouse and an outdoor. We opened up one store. And since then we've grown the farm. Now we have pretty much the whole property fence, 42,000 outdoor plants, a large extraction and processing facility. And we had four stores. We just closed one down. So we have three stores. That's great. I'm excited to have you before we were recording. Like I said, just hearing a little bit about your story from your perspective, also just seeing what I've discovered online. It is really inspiring and remarkable what you've been able to build. And so before we get into Michigan, which I want to focus a lot of the conversation on one, because I don't know a ton about the Michigan market, but I want to reflect back on California a little bit. You were saying, obviously, being a part of Legacy, I think, is one thing, and feel free to dip back into that experience as much as you want to talk about it. But really going from medical into kind of the rec transition, my understanding of California is obviously secondhand. I have not spent any time in California, but because of the podcast, I've been super fortunate to have a lot of California cannabis brands operators on the podcast. And I think the thread is very consistent of how challenging and difficult it is. Even the big brands that might be recognizable still do not come without hardships and heartaches. And so putting that aside, help us understand a little bit, like if you were in an area that was was medical, I should say, what was the difficulty of opening up recreation? Was it specifically something that was statewide? Was this countywide? With setting up this infrastructure, the state surely should know that is the progress you want to go from medical to recreation. And so why was that such a sticking point for this particular operation that you were already investing in that part of California? Yeah. And this seems to happen in, it's happened in Michigan. It happened a lot in California. So there is a different stigma that people have between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. People who don't understand the cannabis plant, don't understand cannabis consumers think that it's like literally completely different things. Oh, we're okay with medical marijuana, but we're not okay with recreational marijuana. And when the state introduces recreational legislation, the municipalities then have the option whether they want to opt into those or opt out, right? So on a county level, on a city level, these places can decide whether they want to have recreational cannabis. And a lot of them have existing medical cannabis but then decide, well, we don't want those rec stops. We don't want this influx of big growers. And so they'll opt out. And so I got caught in, in a bit of that in two places. One place where they just decided we don't want anything to do with recreational marijuana. And then in Sonoma County, they did opt into recreational marijuana, but they wanted it in a specific place. And they did not want it where I was, which is in the hills, 
and among vineyards and the irrigation district is what it came down to where I was. So they didn't want us using our groundwater that came from our own well to irrigate cannabis plants. They wanted me to provide a 100,000 gallon catchment tank and prove that I could catch enough rainwater and store it for the year to water my plants. And it just wasn't feasible. There's not enough rain there. And so, yeah, that is a big sticking point for medical markets going into rec. You make a big bet and invest money in a medical operation, whether it be a cultivation or a store, with the hopes that you are able to take this asset into the recreational market. And unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't happen. No, that is a really great distinction. And I appreciate you clarifying that one on just the stigma itself. And I can definitely relate to that just being in Texas, where medical is certainly a little bit more palpable to our state officials. And the moment you start pushing medical towards recreation, they're like, whoa, we do not like what you guys are doing, which is part of the problem with the hemp side of the industry. They feel like we've obviously circumvented their whole gate. We don't want this in our state. And you're like, okay, well, it's here. Let us just have it. But I also appreciated what you were saying about just like the guys, which I want to reiterate, because again, being in Texas, some of my listeners have known, we just closed medical applications for like this, I don't want to say it's like the second or the third round, but there were a lot of people who were really interested, obviously, in getting medical licenses because they foresee medical as being the next step towards recreation, which progression wise, yes, that is the way it goes. But to your observation and personal experience, that could change. A city or a county could totally be welcoming medical, but the moment that it transitions or the opportunity to transition into recreation pops up, that could completely shift. And if you've built your whole business, your infrastructure on getting that that medical to recreational license, that it just shouldn't be as as secure as maybe what we would like it to be, which is unfortunate. I would hope that people could look at it from a business perspective. Yes, I am buying this building. I'm setting up this grow. I am investing all these pieces into building an infrastructure so that I can do good business. The fact that you're trying to recycle and use your own groundwater and then the city is, no, actually, we don't want you to do that. You're like, what the fuck do you want me to do? What's better for the quality of the cannabis that I'm producing? So that is super helpful just to highlight. Now, like taking that experience and shining a light on everything that you're doing in Michigan, it is really impressive. And Honestly, I know very little about Michigan, but what I have heard about Michigan cannabis is it is a sleeper market. I mean, even just on your website, I was pulling this quote. It was saying, I don't know the year specifically, but it says Michigan showed the highest growth in sales of any legal cannabis market in the U.S., posting 146% gain in gross merchandise value over the previous year. And that was according to some data from LeafLink. I just want from your perspective now, let's dive into Michigan a little bit maybe on the policy, politics, legislation, regulation side of things. When you got to Michigan, what was the kind of opportunity? Were there already established businesses? Was it still up and coming? Were you before things really went recreation and then bringing us to present day? What is Michigan cannabis like? Obviously, you just alluded there's still some challenges in Michigan. I don't want people to think that there's a perfect state out there. I really don't think there's a perfect state out there operating in the industry. Every state wants to think they're going to do it differently. And I know you're chuckling, so I, I can't wait to hear what you're about to say. But with that lens, what is Michigan cannabis like from your perspective? Sure. That's a really good question. And there's a bunch of parts to it, but I'll start with Michigan was a very strong caregiver market. It was the second biggest medical market in the United States. They had over 300,000 card-carrying medical patients, right? So 
it had an existing industry. There are existing brands or existing consumers who know a lot about cannabis. So that's one thing. The state took a very hands-off approach to, in, in a lot of places, allowing those medical players into the rec market. Now, they also have the municipal issues here, right? So that's not to say in every city it went like that. There's a city next door to us where they allowed nine rec stores and they kept these guys medical for years and tons of lawsuits. So there's a lot of that, a lot of those issues happening here too. The state, I would say overregulated and under-enforced to the point that between 2020 and 2022, we saw a 90% decline in the wholesale market. So wholesale THC distill itself from $20,000, over $25,000 a liter when the market opened, like $25,000, $30,000 to $1,000 a liter at the end of 22. Oh and it never followed the typical cannabis cycle. I've been involved in the cannabis for a long time in the cannabis industry. It always follows the same cycle. We harvest in October, October, right? Flower, distillate, all the input prices, they fall, right? And they fall pretty consistently. They fall steeply. But then you get to May and prices start creeping back up again as the supply diminishes. And then once you get into summer, prices are high again, you know? And so people can afford to, will not sell their product into the market right away. They'll hold on to it for a bit until prices start creeping back up. They'll release some, they'll release some. And so you can strategize around that. In Michigan, it has been a consistent downwards trend since the market opened and there has been no market cycle, nothing around the actual production of cannabis. So it's been a lot of influence from the illicit market coming into metric here in Michigan and the state not really doing anything to enforce it. I come from that, so I really can't hate too hard. As somebody who's like really trying to follow the rules and be compliant and run a compliant operation now, it definitely hurt a lot. It hurt our business. It was very difficult to survive. At the end of last year, they took out the head of the state agency, the CRA. He got raided by the feds. They brought in somebody new and this guy has been enforcing. And so Distal went back up to $8,000 a liter. It has come down a little bit since then to around $5,000, but we're finally starting to get a look at what the actual supply of cannabis and cannabis related products in the state of Michigan looks like now that they're doing some enforcement. I was just say, how long has Michigan been recreation? End of 2019. Okay, so just a couple of years. So it's still stabilizing yeah. itself. Yeah, it's still stabilizing. And when you look at, at like historical rec markets that have opened, there have been a couple, two, three really strong years because it takes a while for people to build infrastructure and get up and running and build farms. And so there are a couple, two, three really strong years. And as new markets open now, they're not having those two to three strong years because there's so much supply from adjacent markets. Oklahoma, California, Canada, right? We're right next to Canada. We get we coming in from Canada like crazy. So there's just so much supply in the United States right now that it's really hard to keep the markets separated, even when you introduce a rec market. Do you feel, and just to clarify a little bit, that the like twofold. One, does Michigan cap licenses? So is there an issue where there's not enough, I guess, buyers to operators? And so that's the challenge? Or is it really the illicit flooding into the rec market causing this crash in prices? So Michigan does not have a license cap. They have discussed putting a moratorium on licenses. They haven't done it yet. And that's at like the gubernatorial level. 
And, but the main issue with the price compression has been the illicit market affecting the regulated market. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question there. Just wanting to understand, is it the lack of licensing or the influx of licensing or is it the illicit market that's flooding and creating this price gouging, essentially? Sure. So when I applied for my license here in 2019, I had to prove significant financial assets to get licensed. Right. I had to prove that I was a capable operator, that I had assets, that I had liquidity for each license that I applied for. And then... Within four months of that, the state did away with all of those requirements. So there were no longer any financial requirements to get licensed in the state of Michigan. They then cut the licensing costs in half. So it is now basically the Wild West. If you got a couple bucks, you can scrape together and you got a pulse and you can fill out an application and you're not a complete criminal, like you can get a license in Michigan. So that has resulted in, we have over 500 brands in Michigan 700 retail stores. It's saturated for sure. But from a consumer standpoint, Michigan's the place to be. We have a, I think I've heard numbers as high as 40% of the traffic in the stores comes from out of state, right? We are adjacent to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and those border stores, those stores do $20, $30 million a year, very small stores in very small towns that have huge lines out the door all the time. Um, And it's because the prices here are really cheap. The retail prices are cheaper than California and the taxes here are much cheaper than they are for say like in Illinois. Sure, no, that makes sense. I appreciate the clarification just like from your perspective too, because again, I think people maybe look at some of the data points where it's like, oh, it's so exciting, it's booming. As an operator, you're like, yes, and to your point, it is. There's a lot of opportunity there, but then it's the constraints and the requirements or the lack of requirements. And I think that's something that we're going through right now in Texas. Our medical marijuana program is called TCUP, Texas Compassionate Use Program. They are capped at licenses. Right now, there's three license holders. They just opened up applications, but because that didn't progress in session. I don't like the program didn't progress in session. They didn't get any more conditions, any more THC percentage. We're capped at 1% THC for medical in Texas. It's ridiculous. But the requirements are, do you have $500,000 liquidity? Do you have a building that you own? Do you have security on retainer? Like you have to prove all these things. You have to be vertically integrated. And I just, I have so many peers who are going into that opportunity and applying for a license. And now a little bit, I've talked about it, but I will reiterate it. There's some talk that the state might not even introduce more licenses because the program didn't progress. So you have all these people that are trying to set up this infrastructure again, to your point earlier, where it's, I'm going to sell medical marijuana because I want to sell recreational marijuana one day. And it's, yeah, good luck with that. And so people ask me if I'm going to do that. And I'm like, I'm not stupid. I want to wait and see. And I... Just don't know what the state's going to do. So again, this podcast is very helpful to culminate a lot of thoughts and opinions to ultimately you have to make a decision. Obviously, you did. You decided to get out of the California market, move to Michigan, set up your operation. I want to discuss your operation and the breadth of kind of all these different pieces because you've got some really great brands that you've built underneath it. But I want to talk to you a little bit because obviously you said you come from legacy and you're now on the regulated side. You said you made the decision because you wanted to play by the rules. I just wrote a piece for, I just moved my podcast to Substack. I don't know if you're familiar with Substack, but I'm writing Mm -hmm. now more. And 
I love to push hot topics because, again, I think if you don't push the boundaries or you don't ask the hard questions, there is nothing in this industry that is cut and dry, copy and paste. It's I'm going to copy and paste and then I'm going to have to tweak a little bit or I'm going to have to pivot a little bit or I'm going to have to duck or jump. And that conversation around do I stay in the legacy market or do I go after a license and legacy being a little bit more broad, obviously, there's a lot of good people who come from legacy because that was the way to do it. So I don't want to just glob legacy and elicit explicitly together, but more so on the unlicensed avenue versus licensed avenue. If you could just share a little bit about what that experience was like, maybe from your perspective of obviously like you made a decision to want to go licensed. What are some of the hard parts about the legacy or the illicit side? And just kind of compare and contrast a little bit for us because it's positioning it to me. I'm not saying to do things illicitly by any means. That's not what I'm saying to the listeners. But you need to fully understand what you are getting into when you want to pursue the license side. And that's over-regulation or under-regulation or over-enforcement or under-enforcement or taxation or all these crazy things. And so I just feel like having you here with that experience from both sides of the spectrum could be really helpful just to paint a little bit of a picture for us of some of those conversations that you're having with yourself of, yep, I am doing this. I want to be accountable and also acknowledging and knowing you're competing still with the illicit market. Sure. So the legacy market, I'm not going to say it's easy, but especially back in the day, like when we was $4,000, $5,000 a pound, you didn't even have to be good at this to make money. We, you're bopping people over the head and making good money. And as prices have come down, it's become a little bit more challenging to make money and you have to have good connections to make money, but there will always be an illicit market. You think about this, like what other business, if you want to start a potato chip company, it's not like there's a guy down the street who's selling bootleg potato chips out of his house. It doesn't exist. This is a very unique thing that we do. And so operating in the legacy market is very relaxed and you can do your own thing. You don't have to get your product tested. You don't have a plant count regulation, you know, you're flying by the seat of your pants, generally disorganized. Like my grows were so disorganized. Like there was no planning involved. We were just spending money whenever we had to. There's no forecasting. If they said it was okay for us to do 99, first we did 99, then we did 200, then we did 500, then we did 700. Like as much as we felt comfortable with, um, we were willing to do. If you were willing to take the risk, you could do it. Now you get into the regulated market and whoa, is it a different game? It is a consumer packaged goods business. And that is something that I did not understand in the beginning. And when I first got here, I thought that I was a relatively good businessman. I have built a construction company. It has been allowed me to do other things in my life. I, and I felt like I had this kind of interesting mix of legacy knowledge and business knowledge that maybe make me unique, does not make me unique. What makes somebody unique here is if you have 20 years of CPG business experience and you've been running a legacy operation on the side, like that would be unique. But running a construction company, not that cool. So I have had to educate myself as a business person, as an executive to the nth degree since I started doing this. You want to talk about going from having, talking to trimmers on the hill to like talking to investment bankers and only understanding half of the words that they're saying and like sitting there feverishly taking notes about big words that they're saying, parapsoo, all this and that, and then Googling them afterwards and then coming back on the next call and using those words like entertaining. Oh, yeah, we'll all get into this parapsoo, no problem. And so that has been my experience. It's been like, 
if you want to go from legacy to regulated, like you have to be willing to educate yourself and really step your game. I took accounting classes at Harvard. I took this Harvard core program in accounting because I know a fucking thing about accounting and I'm hiring a CFO and I'm hiring a controller and I don't know what the fuck they're saying to me. And so how, even if I hire smart people around me, if I don't really understand at least the base knowledge of what they're doing, like they could be feeding me a gang of bullshit and I wouldn't know. And so if you want to go from legacy to regulated, are you willing to learn all the things that you need to learn to be effective? And so I, I have been, um, and I don't know if that makes me unique, but I think it's definitely helped me survive the last year. Cause last year, a lot of people went under and there's still a lot of people going under. But the willingness to learn, I think, is what will set people apart who want to make the jump. Because a lot of people from the legacy industry, I think we know it all. We've been doing this for 20 fucking years. I've been growing since, you know, we were touching plants back when it was illegal. Nobody knows how to grow like us. Yes, a lot of us are really good growers. But are you a good grower at scale? Can you take what you did on 99 plants and apply it to 20 acres? And the answer is largely no. It doesn't work at scale. And you need to learn and to bring in people from other industries, bring in people from ornamental fundamentals, horticulturalists, people who understand agriculture at scale, and then the legacy artisanal cannabis knowledge and marry the two together to really do this thing right. I really appreciate your honesty with that answer. I think obviously you lived it. So it's your truth. And it's, it's something that people need to really understand. I think when you're talking about consumer packaged goods, that is definitely more or less the world that I came from and how I look at cannabis, especially with a marketing background. It's the grocery store analogy, you go to the grocery store and you look at all these products on the shelf and everybody's selling you cans of soup. Why do you pick Campbell's? Oh, it's brand recognition. Okay, what did that brand do to build brand recognition? How do you then compete against the Campbell's? What does your label look like? What does your packaging look like? How do you build that relationship to the consumer that's going to bring them into your ecosystem? And so transitioning now a little bit into that narrative, being in Michigan, you already addressed and identified a lot of the sales are coming from tourism. There's people who are transients, they're coming into town, they don't know this, that, and the other. They're just like, woo, cannabis is legal, going to go buy some. But that other 60% or whatever the other half split of that is, people who are hopefully repeat customers, you're trying to build some sort of consumer awareness. Let's talk about, you know, your brands and also how you're bringing those brands to the consumer. So maybe we want to back up a little bit and highlight, you mentioned you're vertically integrated. I know you have a cultivation, you have dispensaries, you're truly that seed to sale, what maybe came first and how did you start to brand that? And did the brand change from when you first opened up in 2019 to now in 2023? And what has that journey been like? Just paying attention to the market, the highs, the lows, the changes, et cetera. Yeah. So the first thing we did was we set up a farm because that's what we know how to do. And then we opened a store because we had the license and it seemed like the natural next step, right? We're going to grow. We need somewhere to sell it. Exactly. Where you come from in branding is so far removed from like my baseline knowledge. I have stumbled my way through branding since we got here, launched some brands that didn't work. I thought that you just make cool packaging and put the weed in there. People buy it. Of course. That's not. Weed sells itself, doesn't it? Shit, It's just supposed to sell itself if it's good. And so we launched brands that that were confused and didn't have a good brand story and the colors didn't match and all kinds of shit like that and really stumbled our way through this branding thing and finally have arrived at a place where we have two brands that we like 
that we're running with now. And that's Caddy and Layla Row. And Caddy is a value brand. It's a retro vibe. It's a teal. It's for the everyday smoker. High quality, high quantity. It's not fancy. And people here resonate with it. Um, it resonates with people from our age group. And that's what our that's what our target consumer is for that brand. And then Layla Row is a woman's a woman's focused brand that's all topicals right now, tinctures and balms. And that was come up with by Madison for what we see as an underserved market. And we're rolling out more products under that brand. Right now, it's topicals and tinctures. On the vertical integration, do you see that as a trend that other operators are doing? Slash the second part of that question, when you're your own brand and you are controlling the supply chain essentially or the sales channel and then you have a dispensary where you have to sell other people's brands obviously you make the best margin selling your own products but you can't just sell your own products so i just want to understand is are there a lot of other operators who are vertically integrated where you're all agreeing like yeah i'll carry your product and you'll carry my product in your dispensary and blah 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 yeah, everybody helps each yeah. other out or is it difficult to get these 500 sub brands into a dispensary because it's super cutthroat and nobody wants to carry competitor brands and things like that. Obviously, vertical integration is great because you control so many things. But the final point of that is the sale. And when you're selling your product with better margins against someone else's product with not the best margins, it's like, how do you handle that? Especially from branding, you're trying to get the consumer to be appealing to your product, your packaging. Like you said, obviously, you found some success with that. But I'm just curious, because I think that's a big thing that we struggle with here in Texas. We as a brand, my brand Restart, we pretty much only carry our own label because I can. I don't have to carry other people's products. There's no, if there's a product that I want, I can either white label it or I can manufacture it. Some smoke shops, some dispensaries, as they choose to do that, maybe because they don't have the purview to build all those different products. So we do make our own topicals. We make our own oils. We make our own edibles. But I anticipate if legalization comes, recreation comes, whenever that comes in Texas, I can't do that to survive. I'm going to have to carry other people's products. And so knowing that you're living it, I just love your hot take on the realities of it, the pros, the cons, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. So I have a lot to say about vertical integration because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it lately. But in terms of, of like brands and SKUs and shelf space, there are a lot of vertical operators in the state. And I have tried to create alliances with uh, some of them to trade shelf space, even going so far as to swap products with some of them as cash flow is tight in the state. Hey, I'll take $10,000 worth of your brands and put them on my shelves. And you take $10,000 worth of my brands and put them on your shelves. We'll just shop, swap shelf space I and mean, not exchange cash, eliminate AP and AR, which is challenging for a lot of companies right now. And so, yeah, you, you get to a point where you have to be strategic about what you're putting on your shelves and pulling any levers that you can to get yourself on other people's shelves. Because at the end of the day, what we need is distribution. Are there distributors in the state? There's no distributors in the state. There are a couple of people who have processor licenses who act as distros and have a business model that they've built for themselves where they have capital to go out and purchase bulk in cheap and either white label or create their own products in-house. And then act as distros, but there's no distro license here, not like California. Interesting. Yeah, I know Oklahoma also has distribution licenses and some brands have found success. Obviously, it takes a little bit of financial infrastructure. It takes physical infrastructure to be able to go procure that to set up the distribution. But I think 
as you are, I'm sure, very aware, Oklahoma is a true shit show where people are, they went there because they thought they could start a brand and to your observation and points you shared so far, which has been my acknowledgement this whole time, it's like, we doesn't sell itself. I'm so sorry. Maybe in the first month or maybe the first year, but eventually there's going to be competition. Competition. There's going to be choice. Consumers are looking for brands that they can gravitate towards. Stories. You talked about storytelling. And you're seeing that play out, obviously, across the United States. People want to have that touch point. And so just selling cannabis, I think, is slowly transitioning out. Obviously, yes and no to some extent with the illicit market. I think being in Texas, people are always like, what's your favorite strain? I'm like, I don't know, whatever my dealer has. I don't have choice. <laughs> I can't walk into a dispensary truly and buy flour right now. I think that's still a pain point here in Texas. But it's just the understanding of what are we working towards? Like, what's the end goal? And I think a lot of people get into it because they want to just sell weed. They think it's great. They come from it. They've had a family experience, medical issue or something like that, that it's transformed their lives. And I applaud those people. I encourage people to be passionate, obviously, about the industry and the business that they're building. But I think you've painted a really great picture of just the hard work that it's going to take of actually taking accounting classes, being able to speak the language that your team is communicating about your business to ensure that it is going to continue to scale and grow. So from a consumer perspective, what is it like marketing to consumers? Are there any constraints about marketing in Michigan? I know some states have certain requirements of packaging, labeling, what you can and can't, you know, put on there, billboard, advertising, things like that. I feel like we know the social media censorship is very real. In fact, my Restart CBD Instagram got kicked off three days ago and I'm like, I need to just let it go. I need to let it go that we're going to maybe lose our 15,000 followers and all the content and all the goodwill we build. But I'm like fighting very desperately. And obviously the industry peers, they're like, oh, it just it happens to all of us. So yeah. and there's like a calm collectedness about me. That's it is what it is. And if I lose it and I'll start over again. But obviously that's a hard pain point when consumers know you're on social media. They want to hear about the latest product drop. They want to hear about your store hours, what you're doing for a holiday. I saw you guys are doing some events, Smoke on the Water. It's like, how do you promote that? How do you communicate those to consumers? And so I just want to understand maybe some of the limitations that Michigan may or may not place on advertising, packaging, labeling, things like that. And then also what marketing channels you find the most effective. Obviously, you're constrained to operating in Michigan. So local marketing probably is a really big avenue. Yeah. So we'd just love to hear from a marketing split what you lean into. Yeah. So we've obviously, I, I feel you, we've had all of our accounts deleted. I think we're back at six or 700 followers again, which is just, and you feel so bad for people. The people in the department spent like literally an entire years building this and you just wipe away years of somebody's work. Um, yep. And so that sucks, right? That hurts. But from a marketing standpoint, uh, there are regulations in the state. I, I know it's not as necessarily as strict as other states are. We do have billboards. There are regulations around what you can and can't say on the billboards. You can't put pictures of weed leaves. There's regulations about what you can have on the outside of your stores. And, and those are generally municipal regulations. Like the city doesn't want to see big green crosses everywhere. The city doesn't want to see big weed leaves on your sign. Your sign has to be a certain square footage. It can or can't be lit up. And then for us on a brand brand marketing, we have had the most success doing events. And I see that what used to work in cannabis still works in cannabis, which is getting in front of consumers and putting products in their hand, getting in front of bud tenders and putting products in their hands, letting them try it and telling them the story and getting them to 
to vibe with. Hey, I identify with this person. I identify with this brand. Like I want to buy these products because I feel like it's a good representation of me. Uh, and so that has been the thing that we've had the most success with. Attending events, putting on our own events. Like you said, we do a smoke on the water event. It's a sales and consumption event. We bring in a small handful of the other brands that we work with, that we have relationships with, and we have a nice sales and consumption area. And then we have Afro Man performing. And it's, it was the first one in the state where they allowed alcohol in cannabis consumption at the same time. So I thought that was pretty cool. And especially for a small town in Northern Michigan to be like on the forefront of that. And you know why they allowed it? Because we have been extremely involved in the community since we got here. This is a small town. And when I came here, it's like this fucking, oh, look at this fucking California guy with his tattoos. Everybody knows who I am. Just see me at the gas station. And so I felt this like pressure to really perform and to change hearts and minds. Like we're going to get in here and these people are going to love us. And so they did. We did everything. We have, we weed the garden beds along the fucking streets. We sponsor everything. We're involved in every parade. We bought a fire engine that we put in the parades. And we have done what we said we were going to do at every step of the way. And we have built trust with the people here. And I think that from a retail standpoint, that's what you have to do is to build the community because that's what works. You want people to feel like you support them. So they want to support you. No, I think that's so true and so integral, especially probably, like you said, in the market that you're in, where you're in this smaller town, it's like you want to help on one hand revive it, I'm sure to some extent of, hey, we can bring a lot of, whether it's tourism, just money, economics, obviously helping the community out by participating in these different events, being a sounding board, being an amplification. And I think sometimes that gets lost, obviously, because of the stigma sometimes. So it's great to hear that you've been, I'm sure it has had its stigma moments with you for for positive. I know that it's not like you walk in and like, oh my God, welcome. We love you, especially coming from California. I know, no offense to the Californians, but you'll have a bad reputation of jumping into other states. But it's obviously great at a human level to be like, I want to be a part of this community that I'm moving into. I want to build a business. I want to create jobs. I want to give back. On the event side of things, I want to just pick your brain a little bit more because we do a lot of events, but I'm curious because you have a dispensary, do you do events at your dispensary or obviously some of these you're doing outside of your location and what is that to bring people in? Because from my understanding, some states, I don't know how Michigan is in terms of sampling gifting products. There's like some weird laws around that versus obviously some of your events you're able to sell at that makes transactionally more sense, I'm sure financially more sense. But part of the hurdle is like getting people comfortable, introducing you to them. So when you're doing these events, do you prefer to do them in your location? Because it's like, hey, come to me. This is our store. This is who we're about. Or do you prefer to go actually out into the community and maybe build that relationship and then connect the dots for them to hopefully come in? And the final point of that is, how do you track it? How do you track that the events are driving business? Because it's hard. We tried to give out samples because we can do gummy samples or not just gummies, but samples because on the hemp side. But I struggle with like making a form to be like, you can have a free gummy of 10 milligrams Delta 9, but I need your email. Part of it's to make sure you're 18 or 21 and older. You know what I mean? But also yeah. they don't want to fill out the email. They don't want to give you their information. And so it's, I really hope you follow me on Instagram. Oh, by the way, my Instagram's shut down. Okay, I hope you come into my store and see me. Fingers crossed, come into my store. And you're just like, fuck, how do you actually quantify it. And so I'm in the same vein as you. We love events. I love doing events. I, like I said, I come from experiential marketing, but 
the ROI, the quantifiables, the marketer in me, the business owner in me is, did that three hours on a Sunday afternoon, me standing at the booth in front of this other business really help drive people to my business? And so we're balancing, should I do more events at the dispensary? Do I go back out into the community? So I would just love to hear what you think about that. Sure. So this is a unique point where this bullshit regulation that we're under, especially around metric, is advantageous, right? So in order for somebody to come into our event, we have to capture all their information. Okay. Okay. We have to. And it, it resulted in like our first event, the line to get in was two hours long. People actually stood in because there were so many people there that our Starlink was jammed up and we had multiple card readers going, but couldn't get people in fast enough and it was a nightmare. But those are all people whose information that we're capturing. So we're capturing them, whether they're existing customers and we're just checking them in or they're new customers and we're capturing all their information and seeing what they're purchasing. And then we're able to track whether they're actually coming into the store after that. So from that perspective, we do have a little bit more visibility into tracking ROI of our events. We don't really give away a ton of product at those events. If we're like doing a particular push, like for Caddy, we might be, we might have someone walking around sticking pre-rolls in people's mouths and just lighting them on fire. But we're there to, you know, we're selling cannabis at this event. Like it costs us $70,000 to put on smoke on the water. Uh, And so I need to recoup that investment in order for us to be able to keep doing it. And yeah, of course there's a brand recognition and some of the, like the, and unquantifiable things that you get from something like that. But at the end of the day, like we're running a business. If we put something on, the events take a lot of effort. Here's one thing I want to say about vertical integration. It's a lot fucking harder than it sounds. You're running multiple businesses at the same time, largely building them while you're flying, right? So like the building the plane while it's flying thing very much applies here. A cultivation a processing business. Within the processing business, we have multiple businesses. We do contract manufacturing. We do tolling. We do packaging for people. You know, like we, there's a bunch of businesses with, and manufacturing alone is very complex. Like talk to an accountant. A normal accountant doesn't know how to do manufacturing accounting. You have to have a special accountant who knows how to do accounting for manufacturing. It's complex. Then you get into retail. And if you have one retail, that's one business. But then if you have three retails, that's also three businesses. So then if you look at it at the end of the day, you're running 10 businesses and that's hard. And so I think that vertical integration doesn't exist in most other industries for a reason. And that's because it doesn't make sense. And in cannabis, it has always been like, you got to be vertically integrated to capture profitability from seed to sale. And we're subject to 280E. And so we have to have these tax advantages of creating products for ourselves and selling them through our own store so that we can avoid some 280E taxes. At some point, that's got to change. And I don't think that long-term vertical integration is the way. And I think that if you're launching in a new state and you're thinking about being vertically integrated and you have this big business plan that involves building infrastructure, Feel free to shoot me a DM. I'd be happy to talk to you about what it's really. It's it's hairy. No, I appreciate that. I know the listeners appreciate that. And obviously, too, it's it's just what do you want to take on? And in this industry, there's so much unknown. So even having a really good business plan or having the right infrastructure or the right finances or the people in place, you just need to be prepared for it to not be as easy as it might seem on paper. And I think that's a really great thread and points you're making through this whole conversation. I know we're almost at time and I wanted to ask you too, because I know that you've been teasing out that you're starting a mastermind. I don't know to what extent you want to discuss it. 
obviously this episode you've shared so much just like honest truths which i appreciate and all the listeners appreciate because again this is such an opportunity to just like peel the curtain back have a conversation i really pride myself on being like obviously we're states away but like we're sitting down we're grabbing a coffee or a latte or matcha or whatever and we're just shooting the shit because we really care about this plant and we want to learn from each other and again i think having conversations having people in your corner that can help teach you support you go alongside you give you references hey yeah you need a really good accountant hey i know a firm or hey you need really good packaging okay this is where we get it from and again lift the industry up together and so i know that mastermind sometimes has a dirty connotation just in general i feel it's this elite you got to be a part of this elite group to participate and to learn from but you just seem like such a down-to-earth guy who genuinely wants to help the industry wants to help this community wants you know lift the plant up and i just really appreciate that and would love to learn more about why the mastermind especially considering you're like taking on all these projects these are all different businesses like why launch this mastermind what does it mean to you and like how do people get to connect with you and learn from you more other than sliding into your dms which people should for sure do yeah sure so i have been involved a bunch of different personal development is important to me so i have had a one-on-one ceo coach that was a good experience for very deep diving into the business but This is somebody from a different industry. And I spent a lot of time teaching him about the cannabis industry. And so it didn't work out long-term. That was not what I was looking for. I then joined some mastermind groups. I did some informal ones that were not paid. And I had some good experiences there, but there was a lot of, it was like a revolving door where people weren't super bought into it and didn't always show up. And so that was a little bit, and then I did these paid mastermind things where They're run by somebody who's like a high level entrepreneur and like a community for people who are trying to do like-minded people who are trying to do the same thing, which is build a better life for yourself, get better at business and life. And that really resonated with me. And my experience with them was really good. The only problem was that nobody there knows anything about weed. And so we can talk about business issues like management and HR and raising money and preparing for an exit. But at the end of the day, like nobody understands what we are going through. This is such a unique experience that we're having in cannabis. And the best conversations that I have are with other people who are doing the same thing that I'm doing because I don't have to explain anything to them. You just understand through this. I could say to somebody like, man, this is fucking hard. And somebody can look right at me and I like, I really understand what you're saying right now. And I think there's a lot of bullshit in cannabis. People want to talk about how much fucking shit they have and I'm the fucking this and the that and this deal and I did that. Look, this is hard. We've all taken a bunch of big L's and I've taken a lot, okay? And I'm not afraid to say it because Millions has a bunch of L's in it and that's fine. Like I'm still here. The only difference between an entrepreneur who's successful and an entrepreneur who's not successful is an entrepreneur who's successful doesn't quit. And I'm down to share all of my experiences with people. I love talking to people from new markets because I have so many things that so many mistakes that I've made that I just want to tell people, no, don't do this. Here's what we did. This is why it didn't work. And then take that information and use utilize it to make your decision because man, you could save millions of dollars and years of your life just by talking to somebody who's in a market that's a couple of years ahead of you. So yeah, I am putting together like a mastermind group I haven't launched it yet. We are going to probably start doing pre-sales on it next week. 
I don't have a site up for it yet. People can find me at Willie McKenzie official on Instagram and shoot me a DM if they're interested. But yeah, I've been teasing about it, especially on LinkedIn without specifically saying it. No, it's it's obviously kind of it's so needed. Like you <laughs> said, it's one of those things just personally, I'm very involved in personal development and trying to just be the best CEO and entrepreneur that I can be. And even coming from corporate, there's still things that people don't teach you about being your own boss and building your own team and everything you're saying about speaking the language of some of these other aspects. It's like, I majored in marketing. My husband likes to give me a hard time. He's like, you don't know a lot about science. I'm like, I didn't study science. Nobody required me to study science when I was majoring in marketing. I'm so sorry. But Again, the podcast, I think, has been a really great educator for me of just trying to understand this plant literally, truly from seed to sale and also try to build alliances, friendships, just to learn from people because it is a lot. And there is a lot of people puffing their chest up, making it seem so exciting and so shiny. And it's not that it can't be those things, but I loved your distinction, too, between a successful entrepreneur is someone who just doesn't stop and just keeps persevering through it. And so I think that's really the attitude that I want to leave people with is just keep going. Don't be afraid if what even I'm sure some of this conversation people will be like, I thought vertical integration was the way to go. We're not saying it is not. We're just saying question it and be prepared for it to be harder. And that's okay if that's your cross that you want to bear and you want to work through those hardships. People look at me and they're like, you're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I wake up every day and I try to operate a cannabis business in the state of Texas. So there, there's all things that to someone else, what we're doing is really ridiculous and crazy. And to somebody else, it's really inspiring. And so I just really think your story and your journey is so impactful for so many people to be hearing this conversation right now. So I really appreciate you sharing as openly as you did and encourage people to reach out and connect because really, truly building this community is to me a one by one approach. Yes, you can blast out things on social media, but it's getting back to like you're talking about events, building your business, building your community one-to-one approach. If you can just look people dead on and just have a real human conversation, whether it's a competitor, it's a consumer, it's a law official, you're going to have, in my opinion, a better outcome because you're meeting them at a human level versus speaking down to someone, speaking up to someone, et cetera. So with that said, I always love to leave my episodes on a high note. So what's next for you, for your business, for your brands? What are you looking forward to uh, the most? I've learned so much over the last few years, and I'm really looking forward to applying what I've learned to building our brands in the state of Michigan, really focused on developing Caddy and Layla Rowe, building the farm up, and really excited to do this mastermind here in the cannabis industry. I think it's something that's sorely needed. And I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to talk to you today. You are just as cool as Mitch told me, so I really appreciate the opportunity. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. 
While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt.